Amen. You may be seated. We're going to start a series, a collection of talks through the scriptures the next seven weeks, at least seven, maybe eight, we'll see, uh, called The Good News. Someone say good news. The go- okay, say it like it's good news. The good news. The good news. It is good, good news. And the next three weeks leading up to Easter today, next week and the third week, will be leading up to Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and then we'll go through four weeks after that. But the good news is going to be just a, a, a seven-week dive into what the gospel of Jesus is, what the gospel of Jesus is. And it's not just for folks who don't know Jesus. It's not just for folks who are atheists or different religions. It's for every single person in the room, uh, no matter how mature you are, no matter how much faith you are, how much you've read the Bible, this is for us. So before I dive into what this looks like, I want to spend a few moments with you just kind of unpacking why this series and why the gospel is important for us to go deeper in and not just move on from. So the, the word gospel, if you hear it, is actually the, the word is uh, good news. Evangelion is good news. The gospel message is good news, a declaration of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us now and for eternity. It's everything Jesus did, it's everything that Jesus was, and everything that means for us now and for eternity. So when people talk about the gospel, we're not just talking about the cross, we're talking about who Jesus is and what that means for us forever, because it changes everything. And it's not just the door into Christianity, it is the foundation that we walk on, it's the air we breathe, it permeates everything. The gospel is good news. And that is something we need to pay attention to, those two words, because it's very different than the way the world talks about religion and life with God. The world and other religions, whether it's religions or just the world system in general, usually the the way to live life is work, perform, measure up, and earn. You have this pressure in your marriage, you have this pressure in your parenting, you have this pressure in your job to work and to perform and to earn, and you feel it when you don't measure up. You feel it when you lower the bar or you you meet the bar lower. You feel it when you don't perform well and you know you're not going to get what you wanted, um, when, when you're falling short, and you feel this burden to always have to get things right, and you have to achieve, achieve something. Other religions talk about making sure your good works always outweigh your bad works. It's a matter of you carrying the burden. The reason why this is important because the gospel is not good advice. It doesn't say go do. It says it has been done. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. And good news means it is finished. Receive it. Become a new person and live differently. Isn't that amazing? The world says you need to work, perform, measure up, hurry up, get things right, make sure to check off all the boxes. And the gospel says the work is done. Your job is to receive it by faith. You become a new person. And now because you've been changed into a new person, you live differently. There's a reason why the order matters. If you put living differently and works before faith, then it becomes about you and the burdens on you. The good news is that the burden isn't on you, it's on Jesus. And so he has done the work you cannot do, and you receive the gift, change, and live differently. And so the next seven weeks, we're going to work through what that looks like. The next three weeks being looking at the trial, death, and resurrection of Jesus leading up to Easter. And then after Easter, four weeks on the implications of the gospel. Someone say implications. 
There are things that the gospel uh, achieves for us. Jesus has achieved for us. There are gifts that God gives us. The gospel isn't just look at what Jesus did. It is look at what Jesus did so that we can change because of what he did. So we're going to talk about being justified before God, adopted into God's family, filled by the Holy Spirit, and then sanctified, being changed by the gospel. The gospel isn't just the cross. It is also life out after the cross and shaped by the cross. It is good news for every situation you are in. And I believe every problem that we have, especially as Christians, every problem, underneath every problem is probably tied to uh, an issue where we don't understand the gospel. And so my hope for you, for I, for us, is that we have a clear understanding of the gospel these next two months that leads to confidence in your new identity. Did you know you have a new identity? You are not what you look into the mirror and say you are your past, your mistakes, the things people have done to you. You are not that. In the gospel, you become a new person. In the gospel, the things that, are the, that happened in the past don't define who you are. In the gospel, the, the identity is given to you, not earned. It is received, not achieved. It is lived out. And so I want you to, I want all of us, because I, I know so many of our insecurities, our anxieties, our burdens, our pressures stem from us not knowing who we are in Jesus. And we go around living this Christian life, calling ourselves Christians, but not thinking about who Christ is and what he has done for us. And then it becomes hard to follow Jesus. The only way you can follow Jesus is if you keep your eyes on Jesus. Someone say, duh. Come on, it's like, it's like common sense. But I still have a hard time doing that. Anybody have a hard time doing that? Yeah, I'm like Peter where like he calls me out and all he says is keep looking at me and I'm like, yeah, what? And I look at something else, whether myself or something else, and Jesus is calling us to look at him and power comes from that. But I know the questions that might be going through your head for someone who's maybe grown up in church or, or, or knows a lot of the Bible. You might be saying, but well, isn't this too basic? Come on, Chris, like, don't we already know this? Yeah, Jesus died. He got arrested. He resurrected. I mean, shouldn't you be talking? I need help with my marriage. I need help with finances. I need help with this sin. Why talk about that? There's a lot of other things in the Bible. And there are a lot of other things. Not every sermon has to be explicit version of the gospel because not everything in the Bible is. Everything is connected to Jesus, but there's also talking about sex and food and finances. So a lot of things that we need to deal with in sermons, and that's okay. But it's all tied to Jesus. And if you have a distorted view of the gospel, it will lead you to have a disoriented life. Maybe the, 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 the reason why you're feeling disoriented right now is not because you're not doing well enough, but you are viewing the gospel with a distorted lens. You have a distorted view of the gospel and it's leading you to have this disoriented experience, a disoriented experience in Life. Here's what I mean by that. When you misunderstand grace, grace is the foundation of the gospel. When you misunderstand grace, for example, you begin to live with the burden of performing. When you forget that the gospel is all about grace, not works, you start to put on pressure on yourself that was never meant to put, put on you. Anyone do that? Raise your hand, be honest. You feel like you have to earn God's love? Yeah, you know it intellectually, but when you start to forget grace and it's not in your, in your perspective, you start to feel like you have to earn it and you're not doing good enough, so you gotta make sure to read the Bible so God loves you, show up to church so God blesses you, do this, and the burden crushes you. 
When you don't know you're adopted into God's family, you start to believe you're not loved. I can't tell you how many people I talk to every day, and I have this experience too, where, where I, I don't experience or remember or feel or believe that God loves me. And maybe you feel that too because of your sin, your past, your, your unfaithfulness to Jesus at certain moments. You believe that God doesn't love you. But if you realize that you are adopted into the family and the, the certificate has been signed by the blood of Jesus, you can't take it back, you didn't earn it, you can't leave the family, you're in the family forever, that means you're adopted and you are his son or daughter. That means you're loved. Not because of what you do, but because of your position. The gospel says you're adopted and you're loved, but when you don't realize you're adopted, you start to believe you're not loved. And lastly, the distorted gospel when you forget you are filled by the Spirit, like the, Jesus ascended to heaven to, to, to give us his presence, his Spirit, when you forget that, you live like you are powerless to change. You look at your sin, your addictions, your shortcomings, you say, I never am gonna be able to change. I'm never gonna be able to get better in this. I'm never gonna be able to grow in this. This has a hold on me. And that's true if you think that you haven't been filled by the Spirit, but the gospel says you've been filled by the Holy Spirit, and that means the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in what? In you, in us, in you and I. And let me tell you, I'm already preaching before I preach, if Jesus if the spirit of Jesus raised him from the dead, you don't think he can free you from your sin? Anybody? You can, you can respond back. And I'm waiting. Yes, amen. The spirit rose Jesus from the dead. Surely he can free you from the bonds that are really not even bonds anymore. And so the gospel becomes so central to thinking about your entire life because if you distort the gospel, you will have a disoriented life. And so you can trace back your frustration, your weariness, your burden, your, your, your pride, all back to you maybe not understanding and receiving the gospel. So we want to work through what did Jesus do? What did he, he actually go through? And then what that means for us. I'm so excited about Easter in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's a simple service. We're going to be... Um, preaching about the resurrection of Jesus and celebrating two baptisms. Come on, somebody, Erica and Clive. Um, is Clive in the building? Clive, where are you at? I can't see. There you go. Oh, it's just a meek and my. Come on, Clive, come on. Uh, man, let me just tell you real quick. Clive uh, recently uh, made the decision to follow Jesus. This young man is, I'm so proud of him. I'm so encouraged by him. He was at the retreat uh, as a new person that just came to Christ, he's, been, he's coming to prayer meetings, serving, reaching out to people, praying for people. Uh, his heart has changed. And so we get to celebrate real uh, transformation from death to life. Come on, from death to life. And so we get to celebrate that. It's beautiful. Love you, Clive. Uh, beautiful. And Erica, too. She's at, uh, down in L.A. But um, I didn't even announce this. Erica, you know the story of Alpha. But she also has joined us on staff recently. Come on, somebody. It was a quick decision. She wasn't working. The, God spoke to my wife about maybe hiring her, and we're like, let's do it. We don't have money, but let's see if she'll work for free. And she said yes, and we're like, whoa. Um, we'll, we'll honor her. But, uh, but she chose to do it because she would say she wants to work for free because she, she feels called to. This is a person who literally came to Jesus through our Alpha a couple years ago online, SoCal, moved up here, is now leading Alpha, and now is working around the table. That's transformation, y'all. That's amazing. That's amazing. And uh, no glory to us. It's God's work among us, and we get the witness. 
we get to witness. And so I'm so excited what God is doing and I'm looking forward to looking at Jesus this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles to John 18, we're going to correct our view of the gospel this morning, week by week, these next two months. And we're going to look at the trial of Jesus. Oftentimes the trial of Jesus gets skipped over and we jump to the death and resurrection. And rightfully so, because that's really important. Uh, but there's, there's a reason why our two chapters in John at least talk about the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Uh, because it is really important to see who Jesus is. And so the question I want to ask today is how did Jesus handle himself during his arrest and trial? And what does it reveal about him? The way he handled himself in this moment was really shocking. And uh, the way he handles himself reveals something so beautiful about who Jesus is that hopefully my goal at the end of this is to cause you just to worship him more and look at him as more beautiful, look at him as better, because you see this is our savior. And so the kind of outline we're working through as we work through these two chapters, we won't read everything. There's so much. You need to read this this week. There's so much that I had to leave out that is so important, but I felt led to, to, to highlight these two instances. We're going to look at the juxtaposition between Peter and Jesus. There's an interaction that happens at the arrest, and Peter and Jesus go separate ways in how they respond to the arrest. And we need to look at that because it reveals something about Jesus. Then there's a conversation Pilate has with Jesus. A lot of stuff is, is said but I want to look at a couple of verses and we're going to see, again, Pilate's perspective and Jesus' perspective. Very different. And we're going to talk through this about how it impacts our life. And then we'll end with looking at who Jesus is and uh, conversing together about that. You locked in? Ready to go? Okay, John 18, verse 1. John 18, verse 1. This is the trial of Jesus. Well, the betrayal of Jesus first. So we're going to read some scripture. Um, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, he had already sold him out, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, mind you, these are Jewish people, Jesus' own people, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. He came there with weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. I need you to see this. This is important for later. He's in the garden. He hears them coming. And what does he do? He doesn't run. He, the Bible says, he gives us a hint. He comes forward. He comes out of the garden to them and said to them, who are you seeking? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I'm he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, catch this, they drew back and fell to the ground. I never noticed that until a couple days ago. That's, a, that's a kind of a crazy detail. Jesus is saying, I'm he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. I wonder if they drew back and fell to the ground because they were amazed at this person who was about to be arrested, who they heard so much about, just willingly stepped forward and said, I'm I'm it. And their wonder and awe and fear caused them to fall to the ground. So we asked them again, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Then Simon Peter, oh, Peter is just like me and all of us, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Jeez. The servant's name was Malchus. I don't know why that detail is important, but maybe to tell us it's a real person. Sucks for Malchus. And so Jesus 
said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Interesting to note in different gospels, Jesus actually picks up the ear that got struck off and puts it back on Malchus and heals him. This is a guy who's going to take him away and arrest him. And he heals the person that Peter is attacking. So I want you to see the juxtaposition. It's pretty clear, right? Peter is in attack and defend mode. He's like, I got, I'm ready. Like, you ain't going to touch my savior. Don't take a picture of that, AJ. Um, but Jesus is like, I, I imagine if I had a picture like Peter, like, let's go. And, and Jesus is like, here I am. Calm and surrender. And that's a really shocking picture if you stop for a moment. Peter's with a sword ready to attack. Jesus is laying his hands out saying, here I am. You ever wondered why that difference was? Because the Bible juxtaposes those, those realities in, in real time for us to see something about Jesus. Peter is in attack mode and defending Jesus, and Jesus is calm and surrendered. Peter defended Jesus, I think, because he couldn't see the betrayal and arrest as something God would use in his plan of salvation. A suffering Savior and a mistreated Messiah didn't fit inside Peter's box, and so he took matters into his own hands. Peter had a box. We all have a box that we put around God of what God can and can't do, does and does like, doesn't like. And when God steps outside that box, we freak out or we think that's not right or we are confused. And Peter had a box around what the Messiah, the Savior, the one that would come to save humankind or Jewish people would be like in a suffering Messiah, a Messiah that would give himself over to an unjust arrest that did not fit in Peter's box. And so what did Peter do? Well, he thought Jesus was losing and so he had to defend Jesus. And he defended him because he couldn't see and picture in his mind that God would use something like an arrest to forward his plans. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but you've got to realize that Peter, Peter's problem was that he thought God does not use setbacks. But in the kingdom, setbacks are often setups. This was a setback in Peter's mind. Jesus can't go on with his mission if he's getting arrested. God the Father used this arrest as a setup for the death and resurrection of the Savior. What Peter thought was a setback was a setup for God's plan. We're honest. We put God into a small box. We, we think God wouldn't use the setbacks. We fight when we need to submit. We resist hardship and pain. And we have a box that says God is good. He's sovereign. So he will not allow this hard thing to actually be in his hands. Or this season where I'm jobless, I'm single. This season where I'm having a hard part in my marriage. This season where I'm having a rough patch of affliction. That cannot be God. That must be the devil. And I just want to say to you, from this, the testimony of the scriptures in the God. And if the father can let the savior go through suffering, do you not think his sons and daughters will go through suffering? The way of Jesus to resurrection was through death. And so this is opposite of what Peter and a lot of the disciples expected. They expected a military savior, Messiah, that would come and conquer the tyranny of Rome to put Jews back in the place of reigning. Jesus was going to become king, but not through power, but submission and death. So different than what we expect. And Jesus, over here, so contrasting with Peter, 
steps forward with calmness, confusing the guards, handing himself over without fight or fear, and then rebukes Peter. He rebukes Peter. Peter, put your sword back. Don't you realize this is the way it's supposed to happen? Come on, you have to ask the question, what made Jesus respond this way? I mean, if I was Jesus, I, I, I don't know, I, I just would not want this to go and this to be my story because I know who I am. If you know who Jesus is, the God of this universe, how can he allow this to happen to him? We read over some hints in John. Verse 4, John tells us that we read over Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. It's a small hint, big significance. Jesus is sitting there about to get arrested, and he's calm because he knew all that would happen to him. It wasn't a surprise. Can I tell you, you might encounter things that might surprise you. They're not surprising God. Isn't that comforting? What throws you off and causes you to be weary or anxious is not a surprise to God. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. But also verse 11 says this. When Peter cuts off the ear, he looks at Peter and says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus calmly yielded because he knew that the events unfolding around him were the exact things the Father had ordained to happen, the things he had submitted to earlier. You got to catch this. Number one, Jesus calmly yielded, unlike Peter, because he knew that this was the path. So knowing the path of Jesus helps you to be ready when it gets hard. My wife asked me earlier, she's like, yeah, but how, do, how would our people know what God's will is? Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. And I would say to you, if you're wondering, but Chris, I don't know my I don't know God's will for my life, so I can't be like Jesus. Yes, you do. Uh, let me encourage you. The will of God is not what spouse you're going to marry, what job you're going to get, what clothes you're going to put on. Uh, the will of God is your sanctification, that you would look like Jesus, that you would love people, and that you would be glorified in heaven as a son or daughter of God. That's the will of God. And so if you know that, the path is that your hearts, it's not what you're doing and where you're at as much as who you're becoming. That's the will of God. The Bible says, first 1 Thessalonians, the will of God is your sanctification, that you get changed into restoring into the human image of God like it was in Genesis before sin. That's the will of God for your life. So yes, pray about who you can get married to and what job you're going to take, but you do know the will of God. So that means that when pain and hardship comes in your life, you know that's the very thing that you might need to melt away the dross and the nastiness of sin so you become more like him. And so when you look at suffering and affliction, you don't go, well, that can't be from God. It might be the very thing God is using in your life to make you more like his son. But not only that Jesus knew, he submitted to something earlier. This is not in John, but in Luke, we know that he went to the garden, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. The disciples knelt down and prayed. You ever thought about this? It's pretty crazy. Jesus prayed. And he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Unless you think this is like, a, oh, Jesus just changed his mind really quick and didn't really surrender. He prayed this three different times. He was wrestling with the Father on removing the cup he had to drink. What's the cup? Kind of confusing. Multiple Old Testament scriptures talk about this. Jeremiah says this, So the Lord, the God of Israel, spoke to me in a vision, Take this cup from my hand. It is filled 
with the wine of my wrath. So when Jesus earlier says, uh, take this cup from me, he knows the most painful thing he's about to enter into is not nails through his hands, but the wrath of God on him. It's not nails through his hands. That wasn't the thing that was worrying Jesus. What was worrying Jesus was the fact that he was going to be treated like all sinners and what they were deserving of, wrath, was going to be poured out on him. When you realize that the punishment for all sin, the righteous punishment for all sin is going to be poured out on you, that is weightier than some nails through your hands. And so you got to realize when Jesus is praying this, he's not saying to take this cross from me. He's saying take the wrath that you are justly going to, I'm stepping forward as the sacrificial lamb. These people deserve the wrath, but I'm going to absorb it so they don't have to. What happens when you drink a cup? There's nothing left to drink. And so for every Christian... Because Jesus has drank the cup of God's wrath, there's what? No wrath. No condemnation. No punishment or judgment upon the Christian because Jesus drank it. And he submitted to drinking the cup. And so Jesus' submission to the Father's plan enabled his surrender to the Father's hand. There's a direct connection there. Jesus' submission in the garden In that day when he was praying, he submitted, not my will, but your will be done. That submission led him to surrender when things got difficult like the arrest. So if you're wanting to be on the, the, like, at the moment, ready to surrender for what God has for you, you're going to have to have a, a previous submission to him. If you're not for submitting to his will being the driving force in your life and you're holding on to, no, but I need my agenda, then when the moment comes for God's hand to move and you're not, you're not surrendered, you won't be able to because you didn't previously submit. Does that make sense? You need to, you need to submit like Jesus. Jesus said, I lay myself down. Your, whatever you want to happen, I trust is better. And that enabled him to surrender in the moment when it was difficult. Jesus' submission to the Father's plan enabled his surrender to the Father's hand. It's the same thing for us. We must follow Jesus in submitting ourselves. James says that God opposes the what? The proud, but gives grace to the the humble. And then it says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Submit yourselves to God. This is not automatic. You don't just like become a Christian and then naturally want to submit. Have you ever been in a place where you're wrestling with God and you want something that he's not giving you? Raise your hand. Yes, okay. Yeah, you're saying, God, I trust you as God, but my will is better. I trust you as God, but this is not looking like a good thing. I want my way. And let me ask you a question. It struck me with conviction. If it took Jesus wrestling in prayer to submit what do you think it will take you and I? A quick decision on Sunday is not going to do it. An altar call is great. Attendance to a small group is awesome. A Wednesday prayer night, superb. But Jesus prayed three times. The Son of God, perfect and righteous, wrestled to make sure that God's will would be accomplished. If it took Jesus three different times of sweating blood through praying, what do you think it will take you and I? I don't know, but it's going to take a lot more than it took Jesus. In fact, I think if Jesus did it three times and moved on, it will have to be a continual wrestle, and it is for you and I to continually 
submit to God's will and then not go back and take it back and say, but my will. We have to keep on wrestling. So that's why the gospel is so important to keep in front of your mind because Jesus did this, you were called to do this. Because Jesus submitted himself, you're called to submit. We know that submitting to God's will is difficult, but if you know who God is, it's the best thing for you because you are now in alignment with his good plan. So that's Peter and Jesus. But what about Pilate and Jesus? Turn to chapter 19, if you have a Bible, in verse 8. Chapter 19, verse 8. We're going to skip over a few different conversations and pick up in an interesting conversation. This is right after Jesus was flogged and mocked and the crown of thorns was put on his head. And the Jews said, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate's like, take yourselves and crucify him. I don't find anything guilty in him. And then he's talking about, he turns to Jesus and says, when Pilate heard this statement that the Jews said, he's blaspheming, he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, fear. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But look at Jesus. Jesus could have said, let me tell you, Pilate, I'm from heaven, don't arrest me. This is not a good look. Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you (laughs) and authority to crucify you? That's cute, Pilate. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So Pilate looks over and Pilate says, and saying by his actions that he believed he had complete authority over the situation of Jesus' life. He's looking at Jesus saying, man, don't you know you say one word, I have authority, I'll let you go. One word and I can crucify you. And Jesus looks at him. I can imagine with probably a chuckle, I'm not sure what Jesus looks over and says, you bro have no authority. Any authority you think you have has been given to you by the Father. Pilate thought he was truly calling the shots and could keep Jesus from suffering. But you see what Jesus said. You would have no authority over me unless what? It had been given to you from above. That probably makes Pilate even sweat even more. Like, whoa, what are you saying? Someone from above, the Father, God, is actually orchestrating these things? Why did Jesus become silent and not argue and defend? Jesus was silent before Pilate, not needing to argue defend, entrusting himself to his Father in heaven, who he knew had ultimate authority over all things. He did not have to, he did not have to fight back. He did not have to defend. He did not have to convince. He did not have to argue. Why? Because he knew that God was over and above sovereignly orchestrating all things. But Chris, you're telling me that God is even using the sin of the Jews in part of his plan? Yes, and Jesus with all the things that happened, all the unjust things, he rested and entrusted himself knowing that God was over everything. Jesus endured the painful betrayal of a friend. Can you just put yourself in that position? Judas was someone that he called. And then if you're watching The Chosen, it makes it even more impactful because The, the Chosen show shows that, that Jesus and Judas are doing ministry together. And then one day, Judas turns and sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Betrayed by a friend, he endured an unjust arrest by his people. He endured an unwarranted trial. He was not guilty. He endured an undeserved beating. They mocked him. And he endured an unmerited mocking. 
He endured all those things that he didn't deserve. Why? Because he knew ultimately God was the one in control, not the people that were doing harm to him. Chris, are you sure like God really is in control of all the bad stuff? I love this prayer in Acts. It's right after the apostles get beaten for sharing about Jesus. And this is their prayer right before the house shakes. The kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together. He's talking about what's happening right now in John. Against the Lord and against his anointed. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the guy we're talking about now, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus. They were assembling to put Jesus on trial, whom you anointed, catch this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What is... What is Luke telling us in Acts? That all of these things were orchestrated. Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Gentiles were all gathered together against Jesus to do whatever the Father had planned to happen. This might be uncomfortable for you to hear, but you have to be okay with the reality that your box needs to break when it comes to God's sovereignty, he is in more, he's more in control of your life in this world than you probably give him credit. We often look at the news and Twitter and, and we watch whatever we, and we see the world on fire, and it is. And we deduct that if the world's on fire, God must not be in control. Jesus could have had that same deduction. I am being unjustly accused and beaten and I'm the most righteous person that ever lived. God must not be in control, but he knew God's character, that he was a sovereign king, and that the Bible says, whatever God wants to happen, does happen. That is the definition of God. The essence of God is that he is God, which means no one is above him. And so while we have, and this is a mystery, free will and choice, people really sinned in this. People really sinned in crucifying Jesus and lying and being, and being jealous. There was real sin, and they were still responsible for their sin. But look at this. God was behind the scenes sovereignly orchestrating all these events and people. And yes, God even uses and bends man's sinful decisions towards his redemptive plans. If you don't believe that, you're going to be so hopeless in this world because the world is filled with man's sins. And you're gonna say, how can everything ever get better? But if you realize that man is still responsible for their sin and yet God can sovereignly use our dumb decisions for his good purposes, then you can rest like Jesus did. Aren't you thankful for a God who is still in control when everything seems out of control? The hope of the gospel is that God is sovereign over everything. I can't tell you why bad things happen besides the fact that we're sinful and we choose other things than God. I can still tell you that God is sovereign while the bad things happen. And to bring this down to our level, you need to realize, I need to realize that your parents, your boss, the government does not hold your future or steer your fate. God does. Yeah, but my parents did this and it just wrecked me for life. Yeah, but the government is controlling this and that. Conspiracy theories, whoop de wop Yeah, my boss is holding me back. God is in control of your fate and your destiny, not the government, not your parents, not your boss. 
Can your parents and Boston government affect you, impact you? Yes. For sure they can, and they do. But if they were the ones that in control of your fate and full, and full destiny, then there would be no need of God. There is God because he's in control. That means we don't have to fear man and what man can do. Jesus says, don't fear the man who can kill the body. Fear, fear God who can kill the soul. What he's telling you is man can do nothing to you. Don't fear them. The worst they can do is kill you. Whoa, but that's horrible. Yes, but God can judge you or forgive you. That's more weightier than death. So fear, fear of man is not included in the gospel. We trust God. He's above all powers and rulers and forces and God using all things. He's using all things. Can we read this last line together on one, two, three? One, two, three. God is using all things, even bad situations. Even your dumb decisions, even my selfish decisions and my pride and my sin, God is using them. Romans 8.28 says God is working all things out for the good of those who love him. All things means all things. It doesn't just mean good things. Check this out. If God is only reserved of using good things, he would not have much to use. Every day there's sin. Every day there's terrible decisions made by selfish humans who choose to worship everything but God, and yet he's still orchestrating his good purposes even in the midst of all mess. That is what you get when you serve a sovereign God. Anyone thankful for a sovereign God? You're not lost in the sea without an anchor? Beautiful. And Jesus entrusted himself to this sovereign God. So how did Jesus handle himself during his arrest and trial? And what does it reveal about him? Number one, Jesus submitted himself to the Father's plan, though it was filled with pain and sorrow. You might think, well, that's easy for Jesus. If he knew he was going to resurrect, then it's not really hard. But you got to realize he submitted to it knowing he was going to feel the full wrath of God and the full pain. So while he knew he was going to resurrect, it didn't, either, it didn't take away the fact that he was going to feel what he was going to feel. He felt the pain and he still submitted himself. Number two, he entrusted himself to the Father's authority, though it looked like things were out of control. He submitted himself and he entrusted himself. Jesus, while everyone else is freaking out around him, Jesus is calm and surrendered. And there's one characteristic in particular that I want to draw your attention to when it says, what does this reveal about Jesus? What does this tell us about Jesus? There's a lot of things it tells us. There's one thing I want you to look at. Jesus is a humble savior. You just sit with that for a moment. I have a feeling that you look at that and you kind of like move on. You know that you and I are called to be humble, but can you imagine humbling yourself when you are the king of kings who Colossians 1 says all things were created through him and by him and for him and he sustains the world by his word and the word of his power and that God, that Jesus, supreme over all things, submitted and humbled himself and took the low road. So how can you submit yourself to God? Well, if Jesus submitted himself to the Father, enduring pain, you can submit yourself the same way and trust that Jesus will do or that God will do to you what he did to Jesus. Even in the pain, he will bring good out of it. He's a humble savior. 
And in case you don't see that clearly, look at the end of John, or the middle of John 19, right before Pilate's conversation. The Jews answered him. They said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. This is why they wanted to crucify Jesus, because he made himself the son of God. They were looking at Jesus and saying, that is so blasphemous. This man made himself son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was more afraid. Pilate freaked out because that's a big claim. Wow. The Jews are irritated and offended because this man made himself the son of God. Here's the irony in that statement, in the gospel, in one or two sentences. The Jews were offended because this mere man was claiming to be the son of God, but the more shocking and offensive truth was that this Jesus is the son of God who became a mere man. They looked at Jesus and said, this man is trying to act like he's the son of God. I'm offended. The reality was they were blind to the, they didn't even have a paradigm that could fit the gospel message that said the son of God would become a mere man. Every other religion is about you getting up to God and nothing else, that's why, this is why it's good news, nothing else says God will come down to become like you, to experience life like you, to be inflicted by the judgment you deserve so you can be treated like him. If that's not good news, I can't tell you what else is. That Jesus will love you so much that he's the son of God. He deserves to be at the right hand of the Father, praised by angels for eternity, and he's on the dirt being mocked as a king and laughed at. And he did not fight back. We serve a humble savior. We serve a humble king. We serve a humble God. So I want you, as you look to Jesus, that you would be in awe of the humility of Jesus, lowering himself to become a man, in awe of the humility of Jesus, willingly enduring the wrath of God. Can you just sit for a moment? You understand that this is a righteous and holy God who will inflict right judgment on people who have broken his holy law. That's a lot of weight for one person, for eternity, to be inflicted by the wrath of God and just judgment of God. And Jesus said, I'm going to drink that cup for all people. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, not just for you and I, but for every sinner so that whoever would receive the fact that Jesus is who he says he is would not have to drink that cup and would be white as snow and now treated as Jesus. You know, Ephesians says that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Right now, spiritually, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What does that mean? All that's saying is you are in Jesus' position because Jesus was in your position. Come on. But Chris, life is hard. I don't feel it. I know, I know, I know, and that is why the Bible says that we have hope, we do not give up, we do not grow weary. Why? Because the present afflictions are falling so short in comparison to the glory that will come, and one day you will experience fully what it's like to be treated as the Son of God. So the Bible says, hold on. So the Bible says, keep going. Why? Because the Bible assumes and implies you're not going to feel it all now, but one day you will be blown away by what you experience. So hold on. 
we serve a God who is humble. I can't comprehend that. I think it's easier for me to say Jesus is humble, but God, Jesus is God. God who is humble. Let me tell you, you can, I, I challenge you, not just invite, I challenge you to go read the Quran, go read Buddha's writings, go read any other religions, go to their church next Sunday, ask the, the teachers about a God who is humble. You will not find a God who is humble like Jesus. You will not, no religious teacher, no prophet, no God who is in charge of creating the cosmos and would bow down to save sinful people. Gospel is good news. And so our response, the only response, as we look at a God who is humble, is to humbly worship him. What else is better than this? What else is more attractive than this? What else is more beautiful than Jesus being humble? He says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If that grows old on your heart, then you're never going to be able to truly worship. And so you have to keep speaking the gospel over yourself, submitting your heart, making sure it's soft, so that doesn't get old. I have experienced that getting old in my heart because I have not kept it fresh. I have not honored and worshiped like I needed to. And the moments where it comes real to me is when I stop looking at myself and the surroundings and gaze at Jesus. That's why we start every prayer meeting with upward praise. So we can remind ourselves about how beautiful Jesus is before we start asking, fumbling around about what we need. He cares about what we need. But when you realize that he's first the humble savior, then you can approach him in humility and respect him for who he is and love him. If you forget who he is, it'd be hard to approach him like that. And so I don't have a, an action step besides humble Worship, And so I want you to gather together into, into almost worship before we worship by sharing one main reflection about Jesus that causes you to be in awe. As, as anything that I said, anything a part of the arrest and the trial, that you would say, this is, this is amazing. And you would just stop for a moment and not talk a whole bunch. You just maybe sit for a moment as you get in group just to dwell on this. I'm so afraid of moving too fast from this. That Jesus is humble, and that means more than we can even comprehend in this moment. And you would just share out of the overflow what that means to you, that the God who loves you and died for you is a humble Savior. What does that mean for you now? If he's humble before that, how would he be humble and love you and take care of you now? So gather two or three folks. Let's, let's stir up our hearts before we even sing out loud. Let's share that one thing that causes us to be in awe of Jesus, and then we'll pray together and worship. Sound good? Turn to your neighbor, two or three people, let's do this. Seven minutes on the clock, and then we will come back to stir up our hearts to worship and sing to Jesus.